Well, hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Mike's Podcast, and I am really looking forward to what we are going to get into today. We're going to get to hear from Dr. David Gushy. And if you're not familiar with Dr. Gushy, he is a distinguished university professor of Christian ethics and the director of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. And one of the things that you need to know about Dr. Gushy is that he is a highly respected ethicist. In fact, in the evangelical world, was really one of the more respected ethicists up until just a few years ago. And he'll talk a little bit about what happened and what the shift was and why he essentially got blacklisted in evangelical circles. But up until that point, he'd written an ethics uh, book called Kingdom Ethics, which was a textbook at seminaries and Christian colleges all across the country. He has been the president of both the American Academy of Religion and Society of Christian Ethics. He has authored or edited over 25 different books. And his newest book is the one that I'm asking him about today on the podcast, which is called After Evangelicalism. And he is painting a picture of vision for what is happening in the evangelical church and what's a vision for moving beyond it. And, um, and I think you're really going to be challenged by what he has to offer. He has thoughtfully engaged in these things. He's not just sort of reacting, but he has put his work of, of study and ethics into this in a way that I think is going to be really rich and helpful for so many of us. So we actually talked for quite a while, so I divided this podcast up into two segments. And I should uh, also mention to you that we had some recording issues, and so at times it's going to feel a little bit garbled, but I think the content is so worthwhile that it's it's worth hearing anyways. Here's the first segment here with Dr. David Gushy. Dr. Gushy, I'm really grateful to have you here with us on the podcast, and um, I want to talk to you about your new book that you have coming out called After Evangelicalism. And it's got the subtitle, The Path to a New Christianity. It's coming out next week, August uh, 25th. But maybe we just start with the question of like, that was kind of arrogant, right? A new Christianity? What do, why do we need a new Christianity? Well, it always helps to remember that um, authors often don't choose their subtitles, right? <laughs> um, I'm actually looking at what I sent to the publisher and... <laughs> Here, uh, here were four subtitles that I like. Okay. okay. Um, finding a path to Jesus again. Okay. Um, escaping the maze. Finding a way ahead to Jesus. And why Christian humanism is where we go from here. Um, so so I, I really can't defend the path to a new Christianity. Um, <laughs> but because uh, in a sense... Uh, I think my book, in some ways, is, it actually is retrieving a fair amount of tradition. It's just, um, it's just not American evangelicalism anymore. It's something different. Yeah. Well, so you start off your book talking about um, some of the stats of the decline of evangelicalism, particularly amongst younger people, talking about how um, even though the average age of white evangelicals is now 55 years old, and um, I thought this was a really interesting thing that you wrote. You said, what we are seeing is not just rebellion against parents or normal ebb and flow 
we are witnessing conscientious objection. I mean, that feels like really significant language there, calling it conscientious objection. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what do you mean by that? Because um, it, what's different about this than the normal exodus that when people say, well, people in their 20s always like walk away from the faith they grew up in and they eventually come back. Like, why are we seeing something different now? And what what is different? Uh, those were carefully chosen words. And I, I, I'm glad you caught the weight of them, you know, um, because they are they are uh, weighty. I would say. This just gradually dawned on me the more I talked to post-evangelicals and the more I read in the literature. Um, Ex-evangelical movement in particular uh, is filled with outrage. It's not not just, um, ah, you know, too conservative for me. I wanted to go to a liberal church. It's not that. It's... Uh, spiritual abuse language and uh, language of trauma and language of uh, bad faith. And um, um, so not everybody who's leaving evangelicalism in America feels that way, obviously, but a lot of young people are. It's women recoiling against purity culture. Uh, it's, it's LGBT people recoiling against all that anti-gay stuff, right? Yeah. Um, it's anybody who's politically progressive and having uh, conservative republicanism shoved down their throat as like God's way to do politics, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah. And, and then Trumpism, you know, after 2016, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. So we've got a lot to talk about on all that stuff, but yeah, yeah please continue on and what. Yeah. Well, it's people of color who, who gradually or not so gradually sense that evangelicalism is really code for white conservatism, you know? Mm. So um, it's people who, who were told, well, you can either believe the Bible or you can believe what they tell you in school, but you can't do both, you know, and so they end up in intellectual crises. Um, yes. uh, people who, um, who dealt with clergy sexual abuse, maybe in their own families, and, and it was shoved under the rug, uh, you know. So I think, I think there's a sense of moral uh, crisis to me in white evangelicalism and some of the some of these people who are leaving, that's what they're responding to, right? Yeah, and and it's more than just what we see in the normal ebb and flow, like you mentioned, where every generation sees people at certain ages seem to walk away from the faith when they, like I used to be a youth pastor, and we would talk about the, the kids who graduate out of our ministry, and a high percentage of them that during college would walk away from their faith, but we always saw when they got married, when they had kids, things like that, that they came back. And we're not seeing that happen now. We're seeing rapid, significant decline right now, aren't we, in evangelicalism? Yeah, we are. And there's not really, well, it's thoroughly in some ways, but it, it's not looking like they're going to be back. I mean, evangelicals, they are turned off to the brand, to this way of doing Christianity. And um, and it's different. It's not, hey, I'm not, I think I'll just not go to church when I'm in college. It's not like that. Right. So it seems that one of the crux issues um, that, that you point out and that a lot of people have experienced has to do with LGBTQ inclusion. That you wrote, overall, no issue is more certain to produce evangelical exiles than resistance to LGBTQ inclusion, and the dynamics are similar in much of the world. And so I know that in a lot of ways, that's been your own experience in the evangelical world. 
Uh, I wonder, I know that you've written about this a couple of different times actually, but do you mind sharing a little bit of your story of moving towards an affirming theology after not being in a place of affirming theology? And then like, how did that, what were the ripple effects for you in the larger evangelical world when that happened? Sure. Um, I was a Southern Baptist centrist evangelical. Okay. Okay. Southern Baptist was my home denomination. I was teaching at Southern Baptist Seminary for three years in the 90s. And then I went to a conservative Southern Baptist school in West Tennessee called Union University. And uh, in those schools, as an ethicist, I taught a soft version of the traditional position, you know, call it compassionate services, right? Okay. Um, let's be nice, but no space to reconsider this, right? Um, when I moved to Mercer University in Atlanta in 2007, I entered a more open space, a space uh, both in my local congregation and at my school where I encountered openly LGBT folks in my classroom and in my Sunday school class at the church for the first time because everybody had to be strictly closeted or they weren't there in the Southern Baptist world. Hmm. By the way, I think that that is a big part of the story because I was cut off from the conversations that would have helped me to reconsider this issue earlier. Hmm. It was just not possible in this space. Um, so I would say beginning about uh, 2011, um, I began to move into a place of seriously questioning the tradition on LGBT inclusion. I organized and co-hosted a conference for my denomination, the Crawford Baptist Fellowship, which is a kind of a ex-SBC spinoff, and we considered some issues in 2012, um, continued to ponder. I had a guy um, who had read my book on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. He came to see me. His name was Mitchell Gold of Gold and Williams Furniture Stores. I don't know if you have those out in California. No. But anyway, he, he came to see me and he said, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm gay and I'm Jewish and I loved your Righteous Gentiles book. And I actually think it's time for you to, to take a good, hard look at this LGBT question the way you took a good, hard look at the Holocaust. Mm. Because, because I think that you are, you are not adequately exploring the harm that is being done to gay religious kids, wow. including some that you teach. I remember sitting over a dinner and him uh, challenging me but that was just kind of one of many data points at that time, but it was personal, you know. Talked about being raised conservative Jewish, having a deal with God that if God didn't change his sexuality by the time he was 18, he would kill himself on his 18th birthday. Wow. And um, he said, you know, there are people in your community who are in exactly the same place. They look to you and you're not, you're not thinking about this issue hard enough. You're not listening to them. I challenge you. So that, that was like maybe 2013, maybe. Okay. Um, and he helped to, to push me forward. And, but it was people at my church. You know, I think I, because of limited exposure for a while, I thought, you know, gay meant liberal and liberal hmm. meant other. But when you meet Bible serious, evangelistic, devout, gay Christians, it totally shakes up all those categories, you know? Yes. And I met folks like that at my local church and at my seminary. So 
in the summer of 2014, I began writing a series of essays, blog posts, really. And I just said, this was in the Baptist press. And I just said, I'm going to think about this issue from the ground up until I'm done. And by the end of about a 17 week process, I concluded that I needed to reverse the traditional position in my own teaching and writing and that the inclusive position was, was better. It was a better reading of the overall witness. Hmm. And that book, that became the book changing our minds. Right. And after that, um, I mean, I've been in the media spotlight before on some issues. Like I worked on torture after the 9-11 stuff and I worked on climate change. Okay. Nothing this though. The entire force of the evangelical establishment came down on me really, really hard when that came out. I got exiled from the evangelical uh, community that I had been a leader in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I was never the political evangelical. I always really voted Democrat, but it was more the Christian college circuit, the Christian seminary circuit, the publishing houses, the lecture circuit. And at that point, I was, I had crossed the line and I was out. It has taken me six years to process what all of that meant. And in some ways, this book is the culmination of that process. Of hmm. I, I'm so um, curious about, obviously, you are a significant ethicist and we're a significant ethicist in the evangelical world. Your textbook being used in colleges across the country and, like you said, lecturing at colleges and um, writing, I think you've written something like 25 books and a lot of those being published in evangelical publishing houses. And then this is the issue that gets you blacklisted. Um, it seems to be that LGBTQ inclusion has become the litmus test for whether or not, uh, for white evangelicalism, whether or not you are a true Christian, if you're reading the scriptures right, all of those sorts of like markers that are there. How does this become that litmus test? I've really struggled with trying to understand why this and why the why the fury against you over this specifically. It's always the right question to ask. Um, one of the things I say, um, was it in this book or the last one? I don't even remember now. But every generation has its litmus test issue. Okay. And I'm old enough to remember some earlier litmus test issues in the 90s. It was women in ministry mm -hmm. in evangelicalism. And for, for Southern Baptists, that, that helped to break the whole denomination apart. Um, in the 60s, it was civil rights. In the 40s, early 40s, it was, is it right for Christians to support another war? Hmm. Right? In the 30s, it was, should the government be heavily involved in, in intervening in the economy to overcome the depression? Um, in the 1850s, it was slavery, right? You have to have a historical perspective. Okay. Um, in the, actually, there are a lot of other things happening in the 60s too, but like, when you actually hone in on it, did you know there were ferocious fights over divorce in evangelicalism in the 60s and 70s? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, whether divorced people could uh, could be remarried in the church, whether they could be ministers. Um, one way to say it is that conservative Christians have lost every single cultural battle since the 60s. Hmm. They lost on divorce. They lost on feminism. They lost on abortion. Um, they lost on civil rights, for that matter, white Christians, conservatives, especially Southern Christians. Um, they lost on race. Um, 
they lost on God in the public square, you know, like prayer in schools, all that. Yep. Um, and they lost on the sexual revolution. Um, and now this is the last stand issue. Uh, this is like, if we lose on this one, we're, we're doomed. The culture is doomed and our worldview is threatened. So I think, and actually for a while, this was defined as preventing gay marriage from becoming legal. Well, they lost mm -hmm. that too, right? That was 2015. Mm -hmm. That's not coincidental. It's like, if you've lost the culture, the only thing you have left is your own tribe. Can you protect purity in your tribe? And so I was violating the tribal purity by saying, you know, actually, I think we're wrong about this and we need to reconsider it. And if you can't do anything about the culture, maybe you can do something about your people. You can say that that guy is outside because he took the wrong view on me. Yeah. Is there a way forward for churches in the way that we have moved forward with, say, like at the church that I was leading, we had um, we had within our staff different views on divorce and remarriage. And within that, some were more conservative some were more progressive on it. And, um, and we never asked people to perform say marriages that they didn't feel comfortable performing. So if, so if a pastor was asked to perform a, a, a marriage for somebody who had been divorced and they didn't feel comfortable within their understanding of divorce and remarriage, perform that marriage, we would have never asked them to. Do you see something like that existing in the future in the church where affirming non-affirming are able to sit alongside one another, or is it going to have to move in one direction or the other? Um, it does not appear likely okay. that, that that kind of coexistence is possible on this. Mm. Partly because you have to decide what to teach. And because if you teach, that homosexuality by definition or homosexual relationships are a sin against God, you've taken a position. If the next preacher comes up and says, well, actually, I think that covenanted same-sex relationships are fine with God, all you're probably going to do is confuse your people. Sure. Um, sure. As, I mean, I, one might imagine, uh, one could imagine a scenario with a big staff church and a variety of different practices. And maybe here's the pastor who will do that off-site same-sex marriage and the other pastors that won't or whatever that may be happening already but um in general this one appears to be kind of like 1850 you're either you're either pro-slavery or you're anti-slavery okay yeah you um, see it as that significant as a defining sort of movement one way or another it does not a, appear to be middle ground that churches can sustain yeah and, and i've been called in dozens of times in churches trying to figure out what to do and certainly it appears to be the case at the ground level that churches either decide to hold on to the traditional position and the dissenters leave, or churches decide to move to an inclusive position and the dissenters leave. Um, and, and everything gets aligned one way or the other. Right. Okay. Um, well, I do want to ask you in a little bit more about your experience of church because um, you have some interesting, I think, experiences of the way that you are engaging in church now that didn't didn't look like what I was expecting from somebody who's writing about post-evangelicalism. Um, but before yeah. we get to that, I, I wanted to ask you specifically about, and you mentioned this in one of your ideas of your um, uh, subtitles, that you're calling yourself a Christian humanist now, which yeah. um, that was a new term for me. I mean, 
was obviously familiar with secular humanism and have a friend who's in the Yale Secular Humanist Society and is a part of all that. And so I've been familiar with it from that vantage point. Um, help, uh, help us to understand a bit of what you mean by that from a Christian vantage point. Um, I am thumbing through the pages to where I describe it in detail. Uh, it's in chapter three. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd like to just uh, quote what I say here for a second. Please. Um, I'm attracted to the Renaissance term Christian humanism to describe the spirit I hope will be embraced. Um, I want to suggest that we seek a spirit that is Christian, centered in Jesus, and anchored appropriately in our theological sources, and humanist in seven senses. Rooted in a sense of common humanity and a quest for human unity. Hopeful about the moral potential of human persons while realistic about human sinfulness. Respectful toward and engaged with the common human intellectual enterprise of the past and today. Resolute in recognizing and respecting human free will, freedom of conscience, and the proper independence of the human mind. Concerned with the holistic well-being of all humans in this world and not just their souls in the next world. Committed to seeking common ground and peaceful solutions to human problems. And understanding Christianity to be for humans and the creation, not mainly about protecting Christian doctrinal purity, ideology, or the church. Hmm. Um, and I, I talk about Erasmus. Um, the the uh, late medieval figure who was a contemporary of Luther, who was Catholic, who was a giant of scholarship and learning, who sought um, to help Europe avoid rivers of blood over religious difference and failed. Um, but his um, enlightened Christian humanism, his love of people and because of his love of Christ, his desire to find common ground and respect um, when people were killing each other over Jesus uh, is very attractive to me. I've also, since I wrote the book, there have been a couple of books come out about Bonhoeffer as a Christian humanist. Really? I love, I love Bonhoeffer, and I know, um, I know he did a lot of writing about anthropology, theological anthropology, but these, these two books are describing him as a Christian humanist, which is interesting. So, so that word, humanist, I, I picked it partly to be provocative, right? Sure. Secular humanism is about all that matters as humans. There is no God. Man is the measure of all things. Um, and that's it. Christian humanism says it's precisely because we follow Jesus that we care about human suffering and all human beings that that we want to recognize human potential that we want to honor the best of human thinking wherever it is to be found and so on right you know um so you know maybe the contrast term and what really drives this is i've seen a lot of inhumane christians hmm. Hmm. yeah in what way would you describe um like what would be an inhumane Christian activity? How about parents kicking a, a child a down the stairs when the child says, I'm gay? Hmm. I've had people contact me with stories like that a hundred times. Um, or, uh, or people um, uh, essentially terrorizing uh, those who dissent from their doctor, mm -hmm. um, either on Facebook or, or threats or whatever. And I've experienced that as well. And it's not just about me. I'm especially thinking of those um, 
who find themselves alone and vulnerable and they try to raise a question or they have a different experience or whatever and, and they are treated inhumanely by other Christians. Um, and so it's religious zealotry at the expense of human dignity. Yeah. It's also, um, right now, the embrace of politicians and a kind of politics that is inhumane, um, inhumane in multiple dimensions, uh, and doing so in the name of Christian values. So, yeah. you know, so all of that is in there too, right? Well, yeah. So with that, you spend you spend a whole chapter, one of your later chapters, on on politics and faith, and um, I get the impression you're not not much of a fan of Trump and Trumpism. Not not in the remotest. Uh, universe could I be described as anything other than an ardent adversary? So, um, so within all of that, there is this obviously like I don't even know how to describe it other than like this fever pitch, like zealotry amongst at least a portion of white evangelicals towards Trump. There's obviously we talk a lot about the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump. And then within that, it seems like there is this like religious fervor within a percentage of them that just zealously, zealously um, pursues Trump, which is fascinating at multiple levels, not the least of which is all of the leaders um, who opposed uh, people like Clinton on moral grounds, who then supported Trump. Or like Al Mohler, who was president, who's president of the, the college that you were at, university that you were at, who famously said in 2016 that he couldn't support Trump. And if he did, he would owe a, an apology to Bill Clinton. And now he has given just a full-throated endorsement of Trump. So he owes an apology to Bill Clinton. Seems right? like it, which he's refused <laughs> to give as well. Um, yeah, what? I, I don't know if I have a, a, a question there with that other than that rant, other than like, what is your vision for, because this is different than, in the past, I felt like we could talk about like uh, Christian Republicans and Christian Democrats can disagree on these things in good faith and and share a common table and we can come together and we can like have like thoughtful disagreements on these things. This feels different than that. Why, why is this different? Um. I think that part of what I do in that politics chapter is I trace the long history of white evangelical engagement with American politics. And I say it, it has had a variety of twists and turns, though it is now pretty clear that the fundamentalism out of which white evangelicalism was born always leaned right politically. Yeah. Um, and you can see the evidences of it as from the early part of the 20th century with the progressive movement. So, Fundamentalists, not all of them, but most of them tend to be anti-progressive movement, um, pro-capitalist, and so on. Just So the proto-seeds of the Christian right were already being born 120 years ago. Um, gradually, uh, as the parties coalesced the way they did in the U.S., a marriage emerged between fundamentalist and evangelical white Christians with the Republican Party. And this was cemented in the partnership between people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and Ronald Reagan in the late 70s and 80s, right? We know about that story. Mm -hmm. um, since that time, white evangelical Christians, and again, the center of gravity of such is in the South and Midwest, 
um, have become increasingly loyal to the Republican Party, almost to the place of completely uncritical acceptance. In fact, the phrase I use in the chapter is identity fusion. Yeah. To be white evangelical is simply to be Republican. It's just, and you know, probably a lot of people, that's just it. That's, I mean, there's no question about it. There's no option. Abortion uh, and abortion politics played a role in that. Um, uh, I think it's true that opposition to uh, racial change in America is a big part of that story. Um, the Democrats took the um, progressive side, the Republicans took the resistance side, and that explains a lot. Um, but you know, I'm old enough again to remember when those Christian right dudes, they emphasized things like personal character, personal piety. They wanted godly men running America. Remember that? Godly yes, men. Sir. Always men, of course, but godly men. Um, a man of God, a man who uh, who reads the Bible, who prays, who goes to church, who has an upstanding personal character, who also has the, the policy priorities that we want. Um, George W. Bush was kind of in that, cut from that mold. Right, for sure. Donald Trump is not. He's not close. And I think maybe part of the desperate clinging to him is is in the teeth of knowing that that the very same principles that these folks said were absolutely indispensable 30 years ago have now been jettisoned but we can't admit that and so we're going to cling to him all the harder um but in my humble opinion he is corrupt and he is corrupting the movement that marries itself to him corrupts itself and, you know, you know, some of the shenanigans around Jerry Falwell Jr., you know, sure. that's been news recently, yep. kind of symbolic to me on the religious side of Trump on the political side. You know, you have a certain cluster of conservative values or conservative policy preferences, but the person who is the bearer of those values, it just appears to be fairly corrupt to the core. But there's a willingness to accept or overlook or even excuse or not see that corruption because the conservative or reactionary politics that you like is still is there too. Yeah. Um, so could you give us a little bit of a vision for like, what does politics look like in the post evangelical church? Cause I could hear, I could hear some voices saying things like, well, what do you want us to do to just run to the democratic anti-God um anti-life party like what it, what what else are we supposed to do like what is a is it just be a republican christian or be a democrat christian or is there a bigger better uh sort of like political engagement as we move beyond evangelicalism um well personally at this moment i think that donald trump is such a threat to everything that i hold dear including mm. Uh, democracy itself, that I'm saying vote Democrat strongly enough that he is repudiated, okay, for now, okay? Um, so I do, not, I do not think now is the time to indulge in sitting on our hands and sitting on the sidelines and staying pure of politics, right? Sure. Uh, so there's a, there's a like, a, because of the uniqueness of this moment, a, a, a way to engage, and then there's a a thing that's beyond this moment. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of an emergency ethic. Um, okay. 
precisely because I think he's going to, he might contest the results of a close election um, and claim fraud. Um, I think it needs to be an overwhelming defeat. Um, but then on the other side, I mean, the chapter includes um, essentially a call for a deeper rooting of, of Christians in a broad Christian uh, kind of social political tradition that helps us to stay balanced and clear in our principles. So like I talk in the book about um, uh, protecting the distinctiveness of our identity and not confusing ourselves with America or any tribe in America. Mm -hmm. um, uh, acting on the basis of hope rather than fear. Um, keeping our distance from all earthly political powers. Um, having our, our moral political vision shaped by our tradition, not by political ideology or just making it up as we go along. Um, having a global perspective, an international perspective, not just nationalist. Um, and uh, practicing our own kind of internal Christian politics that, in other words, our churches and our communities and our families embodying what we think the public arena ought to look like. So, um, so I would like to be able to retreat to a kind of a, a church that knows who it is, that is making a constructive public contribution at every turn, um, and is providing a moral witness that both parties will have to take seriously. Hmm. Um, not one that is owned by any political party. Right. Um, and when you get in bed with a political party, in order to accomplish certain Christian goals, it is usually the political party that benefits, not the Christian. Yeah, I, I can't think of an instance, maybe, I mean, you've, you know more than I do about this stuff, but I can't think of an instance when the church has actually benefited in the long run by being in bed with a political party. It, it appears, I mean, in short-term influence and access and some power, long-term corruption. And, you know, the more you, you grow dependent upon that political connection, uh, the the weaker you get in terms of the independence of the church as its own thing its own its own community attempting to advance the kingdom of god right there's a lot of theological work to be done here i mean things like what is the kingdom of god and how does politics relate to it you know and mm -hmm. uh, uh what is the end of human history right and is jesus coming back and okay so when and what do we do in the meantime and, and what is our theology of the end there's a lot of theological work there that has been wrestled with over the centuries but there's also deep traditions of of social ethics that we should be drawing on. This whole idea that Christians would vote entirely on the basis of abortion, either pro or against, is a weird development of the late 20th century. Yeah. You know, there's a whole lot of other things to be concerned about. And, and you know, if one were to have a holistic vision of human flourishing, you'd care about healthcare and you'd care about education and you'd care about race and you'd care about uh, hunger uh, and about all kinds of things. And, and I think we would also care about abortion. And um, are you, do I understand right, in some of what I heard you say here, are you advocating for almost a, um, a, a little bit of an Anabaptist vision of the church and politics and Howard Voss and kind of the idea of that the church itself in the way that it functions, you talk about the internal function or the internal politics of the church, the church itself is a politic by enacting a picture of the kingdom Itself? That is true, but what makes me different is I also uh, call for direct political engagement. Too. Okay, um, I think that uh, we need to have a voice into what 
uh, they actually, the politicians, the worldly leaders are trying to do. Um, and what governments do matters deeply to human well-being. Mm-hmm. Because we care about humans, we care about what governments do. Sure. So I think that disengagement and, and kind of just going back to the church as its own politics, it's both and. It's the church is its own politics. And we are attempting to speak on the basis of principle into the public arena. Um, immigration policy, peace and war strategies, uh, uh, tax policy. Um, there's almost nothing that governments deal with that doesn't affect human well-being very deeply. And so we have to care about it and engage. Okay. But just not from a partisan base, but from a principled base. Right. So it's, it's, there are these Christian values and ethics, and this is what drives us. And rather than we utilize this party, and then this party becomes our identity, but instead it's now our, our Christian faith is our identity. And these things um, are the true things that we're pursuing, regardless of where they land on the political spectrum. That's exactly right. And so I actually used the image of like the church sending its delegations into into uh, the, the state uh, so if you have access if you know if if you have access and they're listening we've got things to say out of our tradition out of our values but the goal is not to be the next appointee you know of this or that administration or um to trade favors or to gain access or anything the goal right. is to proclaim and articulate these principles uh, for the sake of human beings so much good stuff there. I can't wait for you to get to hear the second part of this interview. We cut it short here. Going to pick it up again in a few days. We'll post the second part of this. But again, I want to remind you to check out Dr. Gushy's book, After Evangelicalism. You can pre-order it now. It releases on August 25th. And he gets into all the things that we talk about on here. He gets into it with more depth, gets into more topics than what we're able to get into on this podcast as well, but I would encourage you to check out After Evangelicalism and look forward to having you uh, with us again in just a few days as we, as we go to the second part of our interview with Dr. David Gushy.